um, King Jesus series uh, this morning in Matthew chapter 10. So uh, we're going to be in a few different passages today. Just so you know, we're going to be in Revelation. We're going to end in Hebrews 4. So we're going to move around a little bit. Uh, so be ready to move with me when we move. But the core text of the morning is Matthew 10. Uh, let, me, uh, let me bring you up to speed on some of the unfolding of the story of the life and the ministry of Jesus as Matthew gives it to us in his gospel. Uh, chapter uh, 5 to 7, right, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus teaching that the kingdom of heaven is near. It is at hand. Heaven has come to earth. Jesus is the Messiah. He teaches uh, that we can have this kingdom life now. And then in chapters 8 and 9, he begins to demonstrate his authority, his power, and his authority over sin, over disease, over death. And there's a growing number of people that are following the mission around uh, the region of Galilee and northern Israel. And uh, a lot of the crowds are really interested in Jesus and his teaching and his demonstration and all the miracles they're seeing. And then last, last week in chapter 9, we also uh, saw that there's a, uh, there's a growing uh, opposition to Jesus, his teaching, and the mission that he is inviting people to go, to go on. Uh, so that was last week, this growing opposition. And then today, uh, we're going to see that there's a cost of discipleship and following Christ. Like salvation is free. Salvation is free by grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus alone. But following Jesus, there's a cost of discipleship. And part of the cost of discipleship is the world's going to hate you if you're a disciple of Christ. And there's going to be things that you're going to suffer uh, because of that. And we just need to um, own that. We need to understand that. We need to see Jesus helping us understand that. Some context stuff that you're going to see in the chapter that I just want to speak on first before we get there um, uh, is just two, two quick things of context. One, we are in the narrative of Matthew in chapter 10. We are pre-cross. And that's important for us to understand contextually today because in the language today you will hear Jesus calling the disciples to take the gospel first to the lost sheep of Israel. Israel first, Jews first, then Gentiles. And so that's, uh, that's part of what we see in the context uh, today that the mission of Jesus is proclaiming Jesus is Messiah goes to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. That's Matthew 10. Matthew 28, the end of Matthew is, is after the cross. And the language that we see in the Great Commission of Matthew 28 is Jesus calling the disciples to take the gospel to all nations. The, the phrase is all nations, Jews and Gentiles. And so there's a movement happening in the mission of Jesus. The message of the kingdom is present at hand to Jews first, pre-cross, to the disciples, lost sheep of Israel. We'll see that today. But no, Matthew 28, it, it's to the nations. We also see it in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus ascends to heaven, it's the same language of Matthew 28. Be my witnesses to all nations. But contextually, again, it's starting today with uh, the lost sheep of Israel. That's context one. Pre-cross in the story, the message is to Jews. Context number two, there was work to be done. It was like real, tangible, gospel mission Work to be done. Jesus is building a team of people to do the work of the kingdom of heaven being at hand. 
At the end of chapter 9, the crowds were large and the energy was high. And one of the things that Matthew told us about the crowd was that they, all the crowds, all the throngs of people that were around Jesus is that they were helpless. There was no leadership. They were confused. Uh, the language that Matthew used is they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he tells us, Matthew tells us at the end of chapter 9 that the heart of Jesus was full of compassion toward this helpless, uh, confused, broken, like throngs of people. His heart was moved with compassion, and he made the statement, Jesus made the statement at the end of chapter 9, that there's a harvest ready to be reaped, but it was lacking people willing to labor in it. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And now we get to chapter 10, which is the commissioning of the 12 disciples to take the gospel literally to the world. So he sees the crowds. He's filled with compassion. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. I'm going to build a team of people to take this message and this mission to the whole world. And so chapter 10 in Matthew is the commissioning of the 12. And it's interesting to think about this, that Jesus put his entire mission on these 12 people. Like the entire mission of the world was centered in these 12 men. Now these 12 men had been part of the growing throngs of disciples that were following him around. They were part of people. They had heard him on the Sermon on the Mount. They had seen a lot of the miracles that were happening in chapters 8 and 9. But they hadn't been officially called by Jesus to be his team of people commissioned to go with him yet. That happens in chapter 10. We could think about chapter 10 as kind of the beginning of their three-year discipleship program. Like the three years of Jesus' public ministry, officially Jesus commissions them uh, to do that in chapter 10. Um, last week, what I, the, like the sermon in a sentence was, uh, my prayer was that God was using his word in me to help stir up our faith and the authority of Jesus. That our faith in Jesus and, and our faith in his, the authority of Jesus over sin, over disease, over death even. Today in chapter 10, it's this. Faith that Jesus gives that authority, supernatural authority over sin, over disease, even over death. He actually gives that authority, the same authority to his disciples to operate in the exact same ways that he had been operating in. And we see it right at the beginning of the chapter, the very first verse, Matthew 10. He had just said that uh, he needed workers. The harvest is plentiful, workers are few. Pray, send the Lord, or ask the Lord to send workers. And then he, verse 1, chapter 10, he called the 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority. He gave them his authority, the same authority that he had. He gave them the same authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sicknesses. As his representatives, they were giving the authority to do what they had seen him doing. Uh, in John uh, 14, so John 13 to 16 is the Last Supper discourse. The, the last words of Christ before he would go to the cross of Calvary. And in John 14, 12, I believe that's the right verse, he said, you're going to do greater things than I have even been doing. He tells the 12 that in John 14. And he commissions them in Matthew 10 to own the authority, supernatural authority, you guys. 
to go and do miraculous supernatural things in the world. I, I was in seminary uh, 2007 and 8. Lindsay and I were in, we lived in L.A., La Mirada. I went to Biola University. And the church that we connected with there is called Vineyard, uh, Vineyard Church of Anaheim. There's a Vineyard Church here in Fort Collins as well. And that's where we connected. And I learned about this guy that I didn't really know. I grew up Methodist, so we didn't learn about John Wimber in the Methodist Church. Um, but I learned about this guy, John Wimber, that started the, the Vineyard movement back in the 80s. And if you don't know who John Wimber is, he started the Vineyard movement back in the 80s. That's who he was. Uh, and he, I, I read a book. I don't remember the name of the book. Uh, but it was basically his testimony. And one of the things that I remember from his testimony in that book was uh, he had become, he was like a rock, he was like a rocker. He was like a, you know, rocker guy. And he came to faith, you know, had this radical conversion. And he starts reading the Gospels. Like I'm a believer in Christ, I'm following Jesus. He starts reading the Gospels and he starts visiting this church. And uh, he goes one Sunday and He's like watching the service happen, and he talks to an usher. And you guys, you know, if you haven't grown up in church and you come to yours, you don't know what an usher is. But I grew up in a Methodist church, and I know what an usher is. Um, and so he goes to an usher. Ushers usually stand in the back of the room. They help you be seated. They pass the plate of communion and all those kind of things. In the Methodist church, they come down with the offering plates and pass the plates, all those things anyway. So he goes to an usher, and he says this to an usher. He says, when do we, when do, we do the stuff? Like, when do we get to do the stuff? And the usher was like, what, what stuff? Like the, like the stuff in, like, Matthew 10. Like, going out and healing disease. And he's like, all the supernatural stuff. And the usher just goes, oh, we don't do that stuff here. It's just, that's, that's, that's it. That's, and I just think there's a reality for us this morning to go, do we believe that God is still? All right, we asked this question last week. Do we believe that God is still moving in miraculous, powerful ways in the world today? Today, it's like, do we believe that God empowers disciples to minister to people in supernatural, miraculous ways? Do we believe that? We certainly see it in Matthew chapter 10 as he commissions them to take the message and the power and the authority of Jesus uh, to people. Uh, let's read the next few verses. These are uh, the 12 disciples. Um, two, just at verses 2 to 4. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. We know that Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John were fishermen in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. So like blue collar, like rough and tough young dudes, right? We, we know that about their background. Um, verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector who wrote the gospel of Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These were the 12 that Jesus called. I want to just make some points about this group of 12. I think there's some important things for us to know about this group that Jesus called, because I think it was strategic uh, in who he called to be his 12 disciples. The first thing I want to highlight for you is that the group is diverse. 
It's a diverse group of people among all of the disciples, all of the people that were following Jesus and listening to him and watching him and being a witness. These 12 were among that throng of people, and it was a diverse group who were following him. They weren't all the same. They weren't all the same. Uh, Four fishermen is different than Matthew the tax collector, right? Just think like blue collar, white collar. That's not the same. Uh, Simon the Zealot, think, uh, think special forces military, okay? So you got blue collar fishermen, you got a, like a white collar sellout Jewish guy who's like making all this cash, like wealthy fishermen are just trying to get by and you got this like, you got this like special forces guy that was a zealot. Zealots uh, were, if you don't know what zealots were during the life of Christ, they were ardent Jewish patriots. They advocated revolution to overthrow Rome. They were willing to die and they were willing to kill. So let's just hold for a second. Those four fishermen, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot sitting at a table. Do you think they agreed on everything? Do you think that they saw life the same way? Right, we just have to hold the diversity of the very beginning of the commissioning, how diverse they were. Do you think that their relationship was easy peasy? You think they just got along? I mean, you got a, a zealot and a tax collector. You think that was just bro time, just an instant bromance? No way, Jose. No way. Their unity required a lot of relational work. Time together. Rela- relational work. And I will say this. If they did not keep the mission of Christ centered in Jesus and in his mission, they would get off track. And we see that in the Gospels as we understand how they were growing and developing as disciples. When they got their eyes off of Jesus and the mission, things got, things got hard. So the only way they were going to have unity together as a diverse group was to keep their eyes on Jesus and in his mission. Do you think that's relevant today? I think that is so uber relevant for us today. We're a diverse group. Of, and we should be diverse. And we see it at the very beginning of the mission of Christ strategically that he calls um, these 12 together who were diverse and they had to keep their unity centered in Jesus and his mission is so important, I believe, and relevant for us. Second point on the 12, none of them had any special wealth, any special social position or any kind of academic background. I mean, I did a really like a deep, deep Greek, Greek dive this week to see if any of the disciples had an MDiv. And guess what? None of them did. They didn't. They didn't have it. Right? By all accounts, we can say that Jesus chose 12 very ordinary men for his worldwide mission. In Acts chapter 4, after the ascension of Christ, Peter and John are proclaiming the message of Jesus. And the leaders, the religious leaders, who were the ones who had the social positions, had the wealth, had the degrees, they called John and Peter, quote, unschooled, ordinary men. 
And I'm just here to say, like, if you are ordinary, you fit in perfectly as a disciple of Jesus. And God can use you to literally change the world. That's what he did with these 12. When Jesus, we talked about this last week with Matthew. When Jesus sees you, he not only sees who you are, but he sees who you can become in time. Like grace calls you right where you are, sees beyond the behavior to the heart. And the mission of Jesus and the grace of Jesus transforms you from the inside out. God sees who you can become. Matthew, in the tax booth, booth, gets called by grace. And guess what he did? He left the tax booth. Like grace loves you so much to call you where you are, but it loves you so much it will not leave you there. It calls you out and away from our pride, lies of the world, things that, the sin that so easily entangles us. Here's what we know is true about these 12. Uh, These ordinary men took the gospel to the world by the power of the Holy Spirit and by their own testimonies and their willingness to endure persecution all the way to martyrdom, the church was birthed into the world, and we stand on those 12 today. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. Thirdly, 12 is a significant number uh, theologically. Um, we're going to talk about theology. I, uh, I like this little Christian satire site. They're pretty, they're, just so you know, they're kind of sassy, which I'm kind of sassy, so it's fine for me. Uh, but it's called the Babylon Bee. And uh, my friend Nate sent me this, uh, this thing this week, and it said, like, if your church has wooden pews, you have strong theology. And I was like, ba-bam! <laughs> so my mom, my, by the way, my mom, when she was here visiting over Christmas, she was like, those wooden pews are pretty comfortable because of the curvature. <laughs> right? So here we go. We're in wooden pews. We're talking 12 is a significant number theologically. Um, We said this last week in Matthew 9. um, Jesus said these words, neither do men pour new wine in old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Here's a theology of that statement. Jesus is the... New wine. And the old wineskin is the old covenant of law. And the new wineskin is the new covenant of grace. You don't mix grace and law. That doesn't work. That's basically what he's saying. What I want to help us understand theologically is that the old covenant gave way to the new covenant and every story is about Jesus. Every story whispers his name and God is weaving together in salvation history the beauty of the old covenant coming to fulfillment in Jesus, the cross of Jesus ending the old covenant, inaugurating the new covenant, and now we are in the new covenant of grace. And 12 is a significant number, both in the new covenant of grace and in the old covenant of law. And God is going to bring it all together in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation. And we're about to see it right now. And it's going it's to blow your mind. Okay, you guys ready? Um, how many tribes were there in the old covenant of law? How many sons of Jacob that were the 12 tribe? <laughs> 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 
So in the Old Covenant law, how many tribes were there? Twelve. In the New Testament, how many disciples, apostles were there? Twelve, right? So the 12 apostles have the symbolic foundation that the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, had in the Old Covenant. Now, here's what I want us to do with this. 12 sons of Jacob, 12 disciples. Let's turn over in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, okay? Uh, Encourage you guys to bring your Bibles with you to church uh, because we're going to dig in the Word when we gather together. So uh, look, look it up on your phone if you have a Bible app as well. Uh, if you'd like to do that. Um, the vision here in Revelation is of the throne in heaven, Revelation 4, 1 to 4. So let's think about, let's think about 12 being a theologically significant number and Old Covenant, New Covenant. That's the conversation we're in right now. Okay, here we go. Revelation 4. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, And the voice that I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, Jesus the Christ. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. I had to look up Carnelian this morning. It just basically means emerald or ruby. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. If you, if you go home later and you just get on the internet and you do some searching on Revelation 4 verse 4, who are the 24 elders? There's a lot to read. And the, the, the simple answer is we don't know because they're not named. We don't know who the 24 elders are. I, I, I'm just inviting you to consider. I think it's certainly possible. I would even say likely, and you'll see this in a second when we go to Revelation 21, that the 24 elders are the sons of Jacob and the 12 apostles at the throne of heaven and the new heaven and the new earth. But, but we don't know. So I don't, you know, don't post a meme with me on there and be like, oh, I, I'm not, I, don't, I don't know. I'm just inviting you to consider this with me, okay? So don't, don't do that to me. That would be bad form on your part, okay? Because I'm being honest and humble to say I don't really know, but just inviting you to consider. Okay, now turn over to Revelation 21. We're digging, we're digging, we're digging. Okay, Revelation 4 is a vision of the throne. Revelation 21 is of the new Jerusalem after the second coming of Christ. Then I saw, oh, it's verses 10. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Verse 10 to 14. 10 to 14, Revelation 21. But it's a vision of the new Jerusalem. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. 
So three, 12 gates and 12 foundations. And on the 12 foundations were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I think it's certainly likely that the 24 elders are the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 is a theologically significant number. I just think that's pretty cool to think about. Um, Okay, let's keep reading because we need to get into the commissioning of these disciples and what Jesus tells them is coming their way as disciples as they carry on the mission uh, forward. Um, Five and six, here's where we'll see the language about the mission going first to the Jews. These 12, to the 12, these 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. It's to Israel first. God's providence, God's chosen people, Israel, to Israel first would be the people. Israel would be the people that would proclaim Messiah to the whole world. And what we know is that the nation of Israel rejected Jesus and the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus as Messiah and even crucified him. But it was through the believing Jewish minority, the disciples, that God's purpose in history would be fulfilled, that salvation would go to Israel and then to the Gentiles. And we see that plan, that strategy uh, in Matthew 10 this morning. All right, next passage, a little bit longer of the passage. This is where some of the language gets uh, more intense and Jesus uh, helping his disciples know that there is a cost. Uh, There is a cost to following me in this world. Verses uh, 7 down to 20, actually. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. That's the message that Jesus had been proclaiming all the way back. We saw that in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 8. This is where the authority of Jesus is being given to the disciples. Heal the sick, heal the sick, excuse me, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest upon it. This is uh, where we get that phrase, a person of peace. You guys have heard that phrase before maybe. This is where we get that language from. Let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you, Or listen to your words. Shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I want you to know, verse 15, we're going to unpack that at the very end of our time together. I'm going to talk about that. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and the Gentiles. 
But when they arrest you, not if, but when, when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Father, but your Father speaking through you. So here's a question. Are you still going to go? Like, can you imagine being chosen by Jesus among the throngs of people following him? And you're nothing special. You're, you're as ordinary as ordinary. And you get to be one of the 12. And at the beginning, you're like, yeah. And then you hear this. You're like, I mean, the, I mean genuine question, are you still going to go? Are you still going to go? Like salvation is free, but discipleship is going to cost you. Proclaim the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's what the message means. Jesus is the king. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus has come to earth. God has come to earth. God is present in the here and now. And they're going to hate you because of the message. And they're going to flog you for it. I don't know that there's a more intense, more inhumane reality than a, a human being flogging another human being. And he's telling the disciples, proclaiming the truth that I am Messiah, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be hated, you're going to be shamed, you're going to be flogged. Are you still going to go? He tells them, like, you got to be shrewd as snakes. you got to stay on your guard. you got to stand firm. I, I mean, I, I think I would pause. Oh, my gosh. But this is the reality of what's coming their way. But Jesus would not let them go without the promise of his presence and the comfort and the presence of God and knowing what is to come before they left. And so he gives them the reality of what's coming, but he also gives them some promises of comfort. I'm not going to read all these verses, but here's some of the promises of comfort that they're going to get later. Verse 28, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Don't, don't be afraid to die for my account. That's intense. This context is where we get that phrase, oh, God knows every hair on your head. You may have heard that. That's in Matthew 10. That's the context of that verse. Like, I know every single hair on your head. When you're going through the flogging, I know every hair on your head. That's the context of that promise. Verse 32, because you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. In verse 39, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Salvation is free. By grace. By faith in Jesus. Discipleship, the mission of Jesus, it's going to cost you. Last week in Matthew 9, there was a, um, a phrase that we saw twice. Um, and the phrase is, take heart. We saw it in the paralytic that his friends, he was paralyzed and his friends brought him to Capernaum and they lowered him through the roof. Remember the story? 
And what Jesus told the paralytic, he said, take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Raise and walk. The woman that was bleeding, suffering for 12 years, that like fought through the crowd to touch the cloak of Jesus. He said the same phrase, take heart, daughter, term of endearment, family, right? Same phrase. That phrase, take heart, is in John 16. Here's the context of John 16. It's right before Jesus would go to the cross of Calvary the next day, and they would be splintered, and it's really going to come on them. And Jesus said this same phrase, take heart, in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have, tell me, trouble You will have trouble. You will suffer. There will be tribulation. You going to go? You going to go? Are we going to go? Are we going to stand firm? Are we going to be courageous? Are we going to go all the way? Is that who we are? Is that who these 12 were? Yes. Is that who we are? I I hope and pray. I hope it's in me. Hope it's in you, hope it's in us. But he told the disciples, take heart, I've overcome the world. Another another way to translate take heart in the Greek is take courage. It's as if Jesus is saying, I got all the courage you need, but you got to come take it. It's right here for the taking. Take it, own it, have it. And when you're going through it, know this, I know every hair on your head. And you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. And if you lose your life for my sake, you're going to find it. We're talking about eternity right now. And what I love about this story, those 12, they went. They went. Um, I want to just highlight a couple things. Last page of my notes here. Oh, 1130. We got plenty of time. Uh, that I think will be helpful for us um, Clarity-wise, sometimes these things are confusing uh, for us. As we think about our discipleship um, and knowing that there's a cost to discipleship, uh, verse 15, uh, again, Jesus says to disciples, like, if, you're, if, if they receive you, if there's peace in that home, let your peace rest on it. But if it doesn't rest on it, shake the dust off your feet and move on. And I'll tell you this, it'll be worse for that town on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. You want to read a wild story in the Old Testament, go read the story about Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus brings it into the New Testament in Matthew chapter 10. But he uses that phrase, the day of judgment. And I just want to make sure that the disciples of Christ understand what's happening at the end on the day of judgment. Because I think there's some confusion around it, and I think it create, it brings some fear into... Um, Disciples, and where there is perfect love, it casts out all fear, right? So fear doesn't get to have a place. But here's the reality of the day of judgment. Uh, What Jesus is talking about in verse 15 is judgment day, the day of God's final ultimate judgment on the sin of the world at the second coming of Jesus. That's what he's talking about in Matthew 10. The final judgment day, the final judgment of God against the sin of the world. And if you want to read this later, Revelation chapter 20 contains one of the most vivid descriptions of judgment day. It's where we get the phrase, the great white throne of judgment, right? You've heard that phrase before. 
That's what Jesus is talking about. And what I want to say to disciples, believers who are following Christ is this. Take heart. Take heart. Take heart. And here's why. The person who has faith in Christ has already had this judgment rendered. Okay? All who have faith in Christ have already been declared totally forgiven and righteous before God, with a right standing before God. And their names, our names, your name, is already written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul says in Romans 5, having already been justified by our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if the final judgment that would have happened on judgment day has been rendered in advance for you. In other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to be at the white throne of judgments. You've got nothing to fear. Are you all with me right now? So take heart, take courage in that truth today. You, you're not even going to be there. But it is coming. It is coming. First thing, take heart. Good news I proclaim to you today. Secondly, this, I didn't even read this verse, but uh, Lindsay said, hey, you sh- explain that verse because that's a confusing verse. And I agree, it is a confusing verse. Uh, but in verse 34, if you want to look at that in Matthew 10, uh, this is the last thing we'll talk about this morning. Jesus said these words to the disciples, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. To which we might go, aren't you the prince of peace? What is going on here? And I think it's, a, it's something that I, I want to help us understand. Jesus is the prince of peace. And the prince of peace came to wage war against the darkness and the evil present in the world. There is a battle. There is spiritual warfare. There is principalities and powers of darkness. And the prince of peace has come to wage war against those powers. It is inevitable inevitable that there is a conflict between good and evil in the world. Would you guys agree with that? Jesus is at war with the enemy of your soul. And he is your prince of peace. And he is waging war against the enemy of your soul. Righteousness and unrighteousness. Good and evil, truth and lies, darkness and light cannot mix. Jesus came to bring a sword, a weapon which divides and severs. And as a result of his visit to the earth, this is what he tells the disciples later in chapter 10, there is going to be families that are set apart from one another. Because some people in a family are going to bow a knee to the lordship of Christ. And other people in the family are going to reject Jesus as Messiah and go their own way. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Pause with a question. Are you still on this mission knowing what we know about the cost of discipleship from Jesus' words in Matthew 10? One of the things that we'll see next week in Matthew 11 is this phrase. Verse 6 in Matthew 11, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. I'll close with uh, just this passage from Hebrews 4. Worship team, you guys can come back up. 
Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Promise and comfort in the reality of suffering that is present in this world on this mission that we are on. Jesus gave promises and comfort to the disciples in Matthew chapter 10. Here is promise and comfort to you as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Christ on this message in this world today. And I just want to proclaim this over us in faith. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged, you know, sword. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us take heart today. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence and courage, taking heart so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, I pray that we as a people would allow your word to be a sword today, to encourage us, to equip us, to rebuke us, to train us up in righteousness for the mission that you have called us on as disciples. Lord, strengthen our faith, strengthen our courage so that we will stand firm and that we will be people of courage like you called Joshua to be, strong and courageous, not trembling or being dismayed, knowing that the Lord our God, no matter what we may face, is with us wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.